Stanford University. The Human Experience. Inside the Humanities at Stanford University. Humanexperience.stanford.edu. All right. Um, I'll go through in the order of which uh, we'll hear people and talk a little bit about the, their work. Uh, Catherine Ma is the author of All That Work and Still No Boys. Um, she was born and raised in Pennsylvania, the daughter of parents from China. She holds a uh, bachelor's degree and a master's degree uh, in history from Stanford and a law degree from uh, University of California, Berkeley. She practiced law for a number of years before becoming a writer. Her uh, sto short stories have been widely published, and she teaches graduate students in MFA programs. And she's also the founding board chair of the San Francisco Friends School, a Quaker school, and she serves on the board of directors of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon. Um, Catherine's book is a short story collection entitled All That Work and Still No Boys. The, the book won the prestigious Iowa Short Fiction Award from the Iowa Writers Workshop and the University of Iowa Press. Uh, named a San Francisco Chronicle Notable Book and a Los Angeles Times Discovery Book. And uh, won, uh, the title story won the 2008 Meyerson Prize for Fiction. Uh, this year she was named a San Francisco Public Library Literary Laureate. So welcome, we'll welcome her back to the campus. Um, uh, Jean-Marie Apostolides, uh, The Metamorphosis of Tintin, or Tintin, depending uh, on your pronunciation. And um, uh, this is a book that uh, uh, does an analysis of the, uh, the great uh, cartoon um, uh, book series by Harre, uh, the Belgian, if I pronounce it, my pronunciation is going to be all terrible, but uh, who um, uh, uh, produced the, these cartoons and cartoon books uh, in Belgium before and during and after World War II, a kind of controversial figure in some ways because of his relationship to the war. Uh, you know, uh, from reasons that perhaps you will explain, there are no, uh, uh, you know, illustrations from the cartoon books in the book, in this great, you know, literary analysis of uh, representation of youth and, and culture and all these other things. So I brought some from my kids' uh, stash, you know, the, the uh, Tintin's Explorers on the Moon, the Prisoners of the Sun, et cetera. So when you're looking at the book later, you want to look at this, and then you'll buy his book. Um, uh, and then... Um, Oh, well, some of the other books he's done uh, include uh, uh, Les Tombeaux de Guy Debord, um, um, The um, Situationists, uh, L'Audience, um, Said, uh, you know, Desaad, In the Abyss, uh, um, and, working, uh, and Hergé, the author of Tintin, and Le Mythe de Sur-Enfant, uh, I guess the super child, right? Okay, so, um, and uh, Le Faire Unabomber, uh, a book on his uh, uh, kind of um, correspondence with the Unabomber. Um, now, uh, last but hardly least, Shelley Fisher Fishkin, um, who has uh, perhaps produced, uh, you know, uh, an entire library in this past year. Um, sh uh, the books that we're going to be looking at is the Mark Twain Anthology, um, 
collection of uh, responses to Mark Twain's writing from around the world. Uh, Mark Twain's Book of Animals, in which she uh, discusses, uh, you know, it's an anthology, but also raises the way in which Mark Twain was an early defender of animal rights. Uh, amazing, you know, surprisingly, perhaps for a lot of people. And feminist engagements. All of, all of these are out there, and uh, Feminist uh, Engagements uh, was selected as an outstanding academic title uh, by choice uh, uh, in 2009. Uh, she's done so much, uh, uh, but I'll just mention a few of her other works. Uh, was Huck Black, Mark Twain, and African American Voices, uh, Lighting Out for the Territory, Reflections on Mark Twain and American Culture, and uh, Feminist Engagements, of course. Uh, she's editor of the 29-volume Oxford Mark Twain, and uh, revived, restored, edited Is He Dead, a, uh, a, a comedy by Mark Twain, and uh, which uh, she was uh, uh, a producer uh, uh, of this on Broadway um, in 2007, and there was recently uh, a version of it uh, in Petaluma, so, and all around the country. So, let us begin. Good afternoon. My name again is Catherine Ma. Thank you all very much for coming. I'm very honored to be part of this um, great company of authors. Do we have any fiction readers out there? Fiction readers? <laughs> Wonderful. So I'd like to talk briefly today <clears throat> a little bit about how I came to write this book, All That Work and Still No Boys, and then I'm going to read a very short excerpt from the one story in the book that is set at Stanford. I, I came to Stanford in the, in the 1970s at a time uh, where undergraduates were kind of an off afterthought. Um, it seemed to me at the time that the university was very focused on those rising and stellar graduate schools in chemical engineering and engineering and chemistry, the business school, the law school, computer science. Nobody paid much attention to us. We were just sort of along for the ride and it, it was fine by us. But I made this observation recently to a former Stanford classmate of mine. And uh, he said to me, Catherine, don't you remember? They burned down the ROTC building <laughs> a few years before we got there. President Lyman was just trying to hold it all together. Uh, I knew what he meant because I was just trying to hold it all together in those years too. When I arrived at campus, I felt like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, a book that my younger brother had just finished reading. I was wide-eyed, and I was totally out of my element. But eventually, I found a home in the history department, uh, where I had favorite professors, among them Peter Stansky, Estelle Friedman, David Kennedy. For reasons I still can't quite fathom, I took almost no courses in the English department. I was reading fiction constantly, voraciously, as I had since I was a child. Uh, yet, it, I never could envision for myself uh, a life as a writer. I think that it seemed like a kind of dream, um, maybe like Stanford itself, a kind of dream that you put away when you grow up. So I became a lawyer, and I enjoyed practicing law. I enjoyed it very much. Um, but. Uh, I, I was also still reading. I was reading all the time. And um, I was reading deeply of the great American male writers of the time, John Updike, John Cheever, E.L. Doctorow. Uh, I was reading incessantly of those sharp, witty, intelligent British women writers. 
Iris Murdoch, Margaret Drabble, Margaret Atwood, the Canadian, um, Edna O'Brien, the wonderful Irish writer. I was going to see a lot of Shakespeare, uh, but I still had my head in the ground. So Saul Bellow tells us that the writer is a reader moved to emulation. And that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, around my mid-30s, I began slowly to wake up. And I thought about trying to write. This was a very, um, I suppose, in some ways, daunting proposition to me, because uh, I had worked so hard at my legal career and had achieved a certain amount of stability there. Um, but around the time of my 39th birthday, I, I said to myself, what are you waiting for, Catherine? What are you waiting for? So I quit my job, and I got a small office outside my home. It was the one thing I knew how to do, go to the office. I didn't know how to do anything else, but I did know how to go to the office, and I knew that if I stayed at home, there would always be another load of laundry calling my name. Like, Catherine, come put me in the dryer. <laughs> So I got this office, and I sat there, and I, I began to try to write. Um, I was very stubborn. I didn't go to a um, graduate program in creative writing. I probably would have learned a lot there, but I had had so much schooling, I couldn't bear the thought of going back into the classroom. Once in a while, I went to a summer writer's workshop for a few days, but mostly I just read and I practiced. Um, after some time, actually not too much time, I began to publish my short stories in very fine literary magazines. So that was just enough encouragement to tell me that I, I wasn't an utter fool for having left behind the, the legal profession. But I didn't feel, even though I had quite a few stories, I, I didn't feel that I had really put together a collection. And that was another daunting proposition to me. But then I began to take a variety of trips to China. I was lucky enough to go with my parents. I also went with other family members. I went on my own and with friends. And with each of these trips to China, where my parents are from, I began to relax, I suppose is the word. I began to relax into telling the stories that I think I was born to tell about families who live always with history perched on their shoulder, with ancient values bred in the bone, and with 2,000 years of Confucian values served up every day with the soup. What I wanted to address was how does one make a modern life when those shadows are cast so long and so deeply? Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, on one trip I took, I had the very good fortune of going with my parents to my father's home city, which is in Yun the province of Yunnan, China. This was the first time that my father, this was not the first time my father had returned to China since his immigration in the 40s, but it was the first time that he was permitted to return to his hometown, which is very close to the border of Vietnam, and I was able to go with him, and I was meeting many, many relatives for the first time. So I was very excited. I had by then my own family. I have three daughters. And I was thrilled to meet these relatives and very eager, of course, to show them my own beautiful family. So I would whip out my photo album and show them the pictures of my daughters. And I noticed that invariably a look of dismay would cross their faces. All daughters, no sons. They were disappointed for me, and they were embarrassed for my parents. Um, 
So it amused me, it also unsettled me, it, it made me angry, but I recognized, I recognized that feeling. I, I feel that in some ways it claimed me. Here it was, history perched on my shoulder, uh, history insinuating itself into my modern life. And it was that recognition which led me to write the title story in my collection, which is called All That Work and Still No Boys, the title story, which is about a, um, a, an older woman who is um, now an American, born and raised in China, um, in, uh, in California. And she has had four daughters. And then finally, the blessed event, she has a son. And now she is have, has a uh, failing kidney, and she needs an organ transplant. And the doctors have told her that her son is the best match. But she won't hear of it. She wants one of her daughters to donate the kidney. Uh, not all of the stories in my book are about Chinese-American characters. That's one of the reasons I was so gratified when the book did win the Iowa Award, um, because I did not have an editor or a publisher telling me this is who you are. You may write about this one population and no other. They did not put me in that box. I did not want to be put in that box because many people, many different characters interest me. So the stories in my book are about the young and the old, about Chinese Americans, about white Americans, about men, about women. One of the stories is about a Chinese woman, who, a young woman who is a tour guide in China who is asked to take an American family who have adopted a young Chinese girl back to the girl's orphanage. Um, so I suppose in some ways the stories in my book and a larger theme are really about identity. How do we know ourselves? How do we define ourselves in the world? Uh, there is one story that is said at Stanford. Um, when I lived, when I was here, there was a horrible trailer park on campus that where it was a residence for many undergraduates, and I lived in these metal trailers for a year. It was a singular experience, and I thought when I was writing this story that it was a kind of perfect metaphor for being an outsider <laughs> at paradise. So I'm just going to read you the first. Um, two paragraphs of this story. The story is called What I Know Now. Now, most of the stories in my book are a lot funnier than this story. Um, and I do have a reading coming up in San Francisco in May at the Chinese Historical Society of America. And I think maybe I'll read one of my funnier stories there. <laughs> I put out on the table outside uh, postcards. It has my website on it and my email address. And um, my website has a, a list of all my scheduled readings and such. The book came out in September, so my public appearances are kind of slowing down. But I still have a few coming up. Here's the beginning of this story, what I know now. I was 18, a year younger than my sophomore classmates, and had come to the university, an illustrious one with sandstone buildings, red tile roofs, and a chip on its shoulder, as a transfer student from the University of Nevada. My parents had used to live in Reno back when it was nothing, foothills, a neighbor's wave, and I had had use of a horse there when I was 10, which I rode out to see every day on my bicycle, so I had gone back to Reno at the start of my freshman year, looking for home, though, of course, it was long gone. At my new university, they gave me a plastic ID stamp transfer status, which meant I was guaranteed a place to live on campus. 
the university had gotten so flush, despite its sore-footed self-image, that lots of its students were evicted by their sophomore year and made to leave their hobbit holes, leave their warm seats at the cafeteria table, and find themselves an apartment near the town railroad tracks. But I was guaranteed housing so that I could integrate smoothly into campus life. I was given three roommates, all sophomores, and assigned to live in 25W Madera Court, a mobile home parked with 60 other mobile homes, four to a quadrant and one main office. This trailer park, this temporary housing, arranged along narrow pathways like a child might arrange Band-Aid boxes in repeating patterns across the bathroom floor, had gone in as an emergency stopgap solution, installed for two years, three at the most, in the vacant lot next to an elegant Spanish mission-style dorm known for its spring musical productions. It seemed a joke a mockery that the careful sandstone quadrangles of the rest of the university should be imitated in aluminum siding. But no one much noticed the absurd contradiction. My roommates told me the trailer park had been there going on 10 years. Though I had hoped when I poured through the glossy catalogs and dreamed rich dreams of my collegiate career that I would be given a corner room in a red top tower, it was fitting after all that I should be assigned to the trailers. Thank you very much. Well, I guess I should say a few words about uh, Hergé and uh, the Tintin adventure rather than present concretely my own uh, book. Hergé's real name was Georges Rumi. He was born in 1907 and died in 1983. Over, the year, over 50 years, he published basically almost only The Adventure of Tintin in newspaper and then later on after Second World War in albums. So it is a main work, uh, it's a life work in a certain way. Today, the Tintin adventures have been published in 57, maybe more languages, and he has sold uh, over 200 million copies of uh, The Adventure of Tintin. So it is extremely popular beyond the realm of uh, Francophone and French-speaking countries. Um, at the origin, um, Tintin is a comic strip only devoted to children. Uh, today, uh, Tintin is both uh, a myth, a collective myth, and a work of art and literature. There is a complete museum in Belgium devoted to Hergé. Uh, as you may know or may not know, uh, Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson are issuing in approximately one year at least two films uh, dealing with uh, Tintin Adventures. And if it works well, they have in project more than that. What is more amazing is that since the death of Hergé in 1983, 
Tintin has become a legitimate field of research in the academic milieu. Uh, several, I should say, several hundreds of books have been published since that time, giving birth to a field of knowledge which is known with a grain of salt as Tintinology. But <laughs> you, you have symposium, academic symposiums on Tintin. You have uh, theses on Tintin less than three months ago. Uh, I, I went to a, a presentation of a thesis in the University of Lille, and the guy uh, did his thesis on only one album of Tintin out of 24. Um, he also presented the thesis at single space so that he would not use too much paper. Believe it or not, it is a true story. The, the thesis as it was presented was over 1,000 pages. And single space. And uh, I read it, it was fascinating in a certain way. Uh, 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 and in, in, in many respects, it is only to give you uh, an idea at the level of the complexity of the reading of Tintin today, and Hergé is considered as an author in francophone country. <coughs> we, we don't know if it will go beyond francophone countries. It's an extremely complex uh, uh, question, but as uh, an author who can pair with uh, Gustave Flaubert, uh, Honoré de Balzac, and great 19th century author, the way we can read and discuss Tintin today, uh, Tintin now is not any longer only for children, but for everybody, and at, uh, for adults, it is not any longer a naive reading that we can have of Tintin because so many extremely sophisticated books have been uh, written about Tintin that it's like Shakespeare. You can, uh, also, it's difficult to compare Hergé to Shakespeare, but to Flaubert, in a certain way, it is perfectly legitimate. You cannot read naively Hamlet or Richard II, because we know so many things that if we were only to, to serve to our students common places uh, about these plays, they would make fun of us. They, they would see us as naive or uh, lousy professors. It's the same for Tintin today. Hergé has been subjected to five or six different biographies, so we know a lot about his own life, and there are different aspects to enter into, uh, into his work from a biographical perspective, of course, it is legitimate to read it as a biography, including Hergé's own unconscious. You can read it from an artistic perspective, because he's a great visual artist. You can read it from a political uh, um, uh, set of uh, uh, adventure because it deals with politics. It is extremely involved in politics from 1930 
up to uh, 1980s, the first adventure is called Tintin in the Land of the Soviets. So it deals with communism. Then there is an album known as Tintin in America, which deals with uh, capitalism and the situation of Chicago in the early 30s. You can read it from a literary perspective also, and from a different perspective. My own book, just to say a word about it, um, uh, takes into account both uh, the socio-political dimension of Tintin, that means its connection to its real history, and also uh, its uh, literary aspect from uh, um, both um, psychoanalytic perspective and a literary perspective. Uh, the last thing I want to say is that one of the interests of the Tintin adventure is not only the extreme complexity of this set of albums, but the fact that Tintin has been transformed into a myth. You have gathering of people in Europe uh, dressing themselves as Tintin characters. The same way some people do it in America, dressing in characters of uh, Star Trek or things of this sort. So what is the need for new myths at a time where traditional religions are in decline? What is the interest of this sort of gathering when in Europe the class structure, which was so well defined when I was young, you had on one side, let's say, the proletariat, the petite bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie, today no. There is no more frontier. The traditional class structure, in a certain way, is uh, uh, much uh, less visible, and people need social recognition. So, in a certain way, the myth of Tintin is taking the place, is a way. Uh, let me use a, a term borrowed from the field of anthropology. It's almost a totem which defined a group of people inside the totem with Tintin as the fetish and creating an outside. Beyond the quality of uh, Hergé's work, what is interesting for me is also these new forms of sociality. Why do we need that today? to define ourselves. So in that respect, um, it, it is extremely interesting to see uh, this sort of new sociological phenomena. Let me conclude by saying that uh, I, I, I probably, uh, forgive me for quote unquote boasting a little bit, I was the first scholar to reunite the album all together and to read them as a total story. That means not to see them as separate adventure, but as a totality. And uh, this book over the years, at the beginning, of course, uh, I had first a lot of difficulty to find a publisher because it was one of the first uh, uh, academic analysis of Tintin and nobody wanted it. Uh, uh, but uh, um, now, 26 uh, uh, or seven years later, this book has been republished by three different <coughs> publishers and is now available also 
in, uh, in paperback, in paperback, and uh, it's the beginning of a foreign translation. So in a certain way, uh, I, I'm not proud, no, but I'm happy that I took a risk many years ago, and uh, ultimately, not because of me or because of my book, but because of the quality of Hergé's work, we can see so many years later that indeed this, uh, uh, this bet was probably right because Tintin is probably only at the beginning of its international uh, 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 reputation. I'm done. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. And I, too, would like to thank Peter Stansky for organizing this lovely event and uh, Hilton for his nice, nice introduction. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that I learned editing the Mark Twain anthology that I really had not expected to learn. Twain often takes me to places I did not plan to go, and this was one occasion. So Ernest Hemingway famously said in 1935 that all modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. But these days, as scholars increasingly focus on transnational dimensions of American culture, perhaps it's time to look at Twain's impact on literature outside the United States as well. The fact that this year marks the centennial of Twain's death, the 175th anniversary of his birth, the 125th anniversary of the US publication of his most famous book, make it a perfect time to widen our angle of vision. I made the decision to do just that um, when I undertook to edit the Mark Twain anthology, Great Writers on His Life and Work for the Library of America. And it, as it turns out, some 40% of the pieces in the book are by writers who are not American, um, including 16 pieces from Europe, Asia, and Latin America that were not available in English until now and that were translated for the book. Well, if we set out to look for an American author most likely to achieve a world leadership, a world readership, sorry, we would be hard pressed to find a less promising candidate than Mark Twain at the start of his career. The dialect and slang that filled the title story of his first book, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County and other sketches, struck some foreign readers as impenetrable. And if they found the dialect and slang of Twain's first book hard to understand, the insults that he hurled at them in Innocence Abroad were, as one German writer put it, unforgivable. <laughs> but Twain broke out of the mold with such original freshness that many Europeans who justly could have been offended were intrigued instead. Indeed, I've determined that the first book published on Mark Twain anywhere was published in French in Paris in 1884 by a 24-year-old Frenchman named Henri Gautier-Villard. And actually, the Gautier-Villard selection was translated by, uh, by Greg Robinson, who I know uh, Stan and Ellen know, and some of, some of you know he spoke here recently. He's at Université du Québec à Montréal. So Gautier-Villard wrote, hello then, charming writer with no model or imitator. I bid you welcome among us, newcomer with endless verve. The sound of the hurrahs you have raised has already crossed the ocean. We have been waiting for you. Well, Gautier Villard, if the name uh, is familiar, is probably best known as uh, Willy, the rather infamous first husband of the uh, young French woman he met five years after he published his book on Mark Twain, who would become the writer Colette. Um, writers the world over marveled at the art that Twain wrought from the speech of ordinary people, speech whose previous appearance in literature had most often been treated with ridicule. Jorge Luis Borges, who believed that Huckleberry Finn taught the whole American novel to talk, 
observed that in Huck Finn, for the first time, an American writer used the language of America without affectation. Borges believes that Twain's novel is the progenitor of two other works of world literature, Ricardo Guiraldes' Don Segundo Sombra and Rudyard Kipling's Kim. Twain's dazzling experiments with the vernacular helped inspire writers around the world to create art out of the language spoken by their countrymen. Writers like Johannes V. Jensen, considered the first great modern Danish writer who went on to win a Nobel Prize for literature. Twain's other works shaped world literature, too. Joseph Conrad often thought of life on the Mississippi when he was in command of a steamer on the Congo looking for snags while Borges used it as a source for the book in which he made his debut as a storyteller. The Yiddish writer, Max Eric, argued that Sholem Aleichem drew inspiration in one of his key books from Tom Sawyer. And he wrote that in a Yiddish paper in Vilna that Zachary Baker uh, was good enough to translate. Jose Marti was so impressed by Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court that he announced in an Argentine newspaper in which he reviewed the book that he wanted to go to Hartford to shake Mark Twain's hand. He recognized Twain as a kindred spirit, as someone who, like Marti, rejected the claims of aristocracy to deference and legitimacy, abhorred injustice, and sympathized with the downtrodden and the disempowered. And I think it's fascinating uh, that a Marti who would entitle his most widely reprinted essay, Nuestro, Nuestra America, or Our America, referred to the author of Connecticut Yankee one year earlier as Nuestro Mark Twain, or Our Mark Twain. In a speech he gave in Beijing in 1960 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Twain's death, the great Chinese writer Lao She showed himself to be a careful and appreciative reader of Twain, familiar with the full range of Twain's writings. Indeed, some of the works he discussed were largely unknown to American readers at the time. Lao She was Chinese most celebrated satirist, and the recently translated speech he gave in 1960 makes it clear that his knowledge of Twain's work ran very deep. What might he have learned from Twain? This is something that scholars have yet to investigate. While Borges, Marti, Gautier Villard, and Lauchet read Twain in English, even though they wrote about him in their native tongues, most of their countrymen encountered Twain in translation. And it's all the more remarkable that Twain won such a fervent international following when we realize that many readers around the world were often encountering Twain in translations of very mixed quality. As Gautier Villar warns us, um, translations may not capture the joyous temerity of Twain's American prose or the joyous eccentricity of the expressions Twain creates from whole cloth nor the sharp edges of his humor. Um, his observation resonates with that of the Japanese writer Okakura Kakuso who wrote, translation at its best can only be the reverse side of a brocade. All the threads are there, but not the subtlety of color or design. Some of, of Twain's translations were remarkably apt, as we learn from the great Chinese writer Lu Xun, widely, widely viewed as the father of modern Chinese literature, the first author to write short stories and prose poems in the language that everyday Chinese people actually spoke, as opposed to traditional literary language. In 1931, Lu Xun's two-year-old son found an old copy of Eve's diary by Twain in a pile of trash left by a Westerner who was moving out of the house next door in Shanghai. And he was entranced, and he asked his friend Li Lan to translate the book into Chinese. Lu Xun wrote the preface to the Chinese edition of Eve's Diary, which was the first book-length publication of Mark Twain's work in Chinese. Lu Xun said that the translator's faithful, simple, natural rendering of Twain's language would lead people to almost think that Eve had kept her diary in Chinese. <laughs> 
Readers of the prominent Japanese writer Kuni Sasaki's translation of Tom Sawyer were not that lucky. Tsuyoshi Ishihara, in his book Mark Twain in Japan, tells us that when Sasaki translated Tom Sawyer for Japanese children, he deleted the well-known scene where Tom and Becky say, I love you, uh, where they exchange kisses, where Tom reveals uh, to Becky's dismay that uh, she's not the first girl to whom he's been engaged. <clears throat> well, in Sasaki's version, uh, Ishihara writes, there is no engagement, no I love you, no kisses. Instead, Tom tries to win Becky's affection by promising he will invite her to his circus every day when he becomes a clown. Well, Sasaki's alteration seems reasonable in light of the conservative tradition in Japanese-Chinese literature and the differences in the customs of courtship between Japan and America. Uh, and this is all Ishihara's uh, comments. To say I love you is still embarrassing for most Japanese. Nonetheless, Ishihara notes, despite these changes, Sasaki's introduction of bad boy figures like Tom and Huck to contemporary Japanese children's literature where no equivalent of bad boy stories existed was truly revolutionary. Most of the boys in Japanese stories, Ishihara tells us, were children without much vitality. Sasaki's translation of Tom Sawyer opened up Japanese children's literature to fresh perspectives. His translation of Huckleberry Finn, on the other hand, so sentimentalized Huck and made him so respectable that the Huck that Japanese readers first encountered would be hard for an English reader to even recognize. He also basically left out any parts of the book that were there expressly to show Jim as a fully dimensional figure, and also he left out any satires of racism in the book. He just did not evidently understand them, according to Ishihara. Fortunately, it was a later and better translation that found its way to a boy on the Japanese island of Shikoku during World War II. I heard Japanese Nobel laureate Kenzabora Oe give a speech in Austin, Texas in 1996 in which he described how his mother had bartered some rice to procure a copy of Huck Finn for him in war-torn Japan, carefully instructing him to tell his teacher if she asked that Mark Twain was the pseudonym of a German writer. <laughs> that evening in Austin, he spoke of the book as having had a profound effect on his response to the United States. But when I read his first novel, The Prize or The Catch, the unmistakable resonances with Huck Finn that I spotted persuaded me that Twain's novel had shaped more than his attitude towards my country. I suspected that it had an important impact on Owe's development as a writer as well. At a reception after his talk, I asked him whether his first novel was responding directly to Twain's most famous novel. Owe beamed, and a long conversation followed. He then wrote in my copy of his latest book that I brought for him to sign, yes, I agree with your opinion about Huck. The narrative of my first novel is under the shadow of Huck. The Japanese scholar Shoji Goto has suggested that since Oe's works have had a tremendous impact on postmodern Japanese literature, Huck Finn, through Oe, has played an important role in the development of that literature as well. Twain's works have been translated into over 75 languages, and editions have been published in virtually every country where books are printed. But we've only just begun to probe the ways in which his works shape writing in many of these languages around the world. And I think that's a good project for the 21st century. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.